0: In uh, roughly 380 AD, it lasted over the span of a a little more than a year. But in 380 AD, the the early church—a little echoey, little church, uh, early church—had this council that got together called the Council of Saragossa. Uh, Saragossa, uh, Saragossa—it doesn't exist as a modern town, but it's what today would be modern-day Spain. And and the council got together to, to meet because there was a need to respond. To a heresy that was kind of being portrayed at that time, and it was called <clears throat> called Priscillianism. A super fancy word. I, I didn't I wonder if you know, there's someone who Priscilla that was the first person to say it or how it got its name. But Priscillianism was a, a Gnostic type of heresy that, that kind of in essence said that Jesus, as as part of you know, the gospel story, Jesus wasn't actually a fully human. Person that came in, in embodiment form to, to earth, but instead that Jesus, the appearance of Jesus, that people saw him walk around, that's all real, but it was really just kind of like a cosmic thing. He never came in a bodily form, but I don't know if it was like a holograph or whatever they thought or just a, a vision of an angel or something, but that people saw what they thought was a real human Jesus, but that in fact... Jesus was never human. And the the council felt a need to get together to talk about this and respond to it because it was becoming enough of an issue that people were believing this in a widespread fashion. And so they came up with these eight different canons that they all signed on to that officially refuted eight different aspects of teachings of Priscillianism. And so back then we did this. I kind of wish that today we still had like world church councils that came together and made these resolutions as one united church, right? One of the beauties of the Reformation is that we got back to the essential tenets of faith. We went to Scripture alone and Christ alone and grace alone. But one of the downsides is that we, the church is really kind of scattered and ununified. And so Presbyterians and Methodists and Catholics and whatever might believe all different things, but back then there was a unified thing. Anytime there was a false teaching that would come, the, the church would gather as a council and they would decide what to do with it. And then that was the way, the official kind of way that the church dealt with it. And so they put out these eight canons that refuted kind of vehemently the, the doctrines that Priscillianism was prescribing. The other thing that they did at that time was some practical guidance. And what you saw happen as a result of the Council of Saragossa is you had these the people in the church in the in the weeks that led up to the Christmas time, right? They started to celebrate. This Christmas season. One of the things that you might find strange is there is no mention of Christmas, so to say, in Scripture. Right? The Savior was born. All of that happened. There's historical accounts. There's all of the Scripture that we read in the Advent and Christmas season of what happened. But there's nowhere in Scripture that we are told to celebrate Christmas in any different way than any other part of the liturgical calendar. And certainly, Advent is nowhere mentioned in Scripture. We don't get it. And so where does Advent come from? Well, we don't know 100%, but we pretty much can surmise that Advent and the traditions that surround its practice came out of the result of this council meeting in roughly 380 AD. And ever since then, throughout the 4th and 5th centuries, we, we started to see this practice of Advent. And the reason for the council putting this together, the reason for them suggesting that we have intentional times of celebrating the birth of the Savior was because they saw it as necessary. We might say, why do we need to spend time in Advent? We know that Jesus is born. We know the birth story. We've heard the scripture a thousand times. Right? Anybody here on Christmas Eve going to be surprised about what I talk about? No. No. It'll be a sermon with some differences and unique whatevers, but it'll be the same sermon that you've heard every Christmas Eve in the nutshell since you've been born or since you've started attending church, right? We talk about it every single year, and the council thought it was important to even go further than that, and in the weeks leading up, to start to celebrate this season. Because the council understood something that we oftentimes forget. If it's not built into our liturgical calendar we have a tendency to forget things. Right? And so while Scripture doesn't say, celebrate Advent, and it starts the fourth week before you know, Christmas Eve, and this is what you'll do, week one, candle of hope, week two, right. it doesn't prescribe any of that. We made all that up in an effort to worship the best we can in spirit and in truth. We do see in Scripture constant reminders and calls of God to celebrate certain feasts and festivals. All the feasts that the Jews would celebrate were ones that the Lord told them to celebrate because the Lord knew that people, us, by our intrinsic nature, will forget the truth in our everyday lives. We know it's true. We've read it. We understand it. we've, We've digested it. We get it. But we forget. And so every year Christmas rolls around and what happens? We forget to think about Christ in Christmas until we come here and we light our candles and we lift them high and we say, Oh yeah, Christ... This is what it's all about. And then the next morning, we open up all of our presents. Right? This isn't a guilt trip or an invitation, but how many of you, when I was making the announcement about Christmas Day service, leaned over to your spouse and talked about whether or not you'd come? Oh, well, we got opening, we got to open gifts with grandkids. What's the point of Christmas? Right? It's clear that we need reminders. And the early church knew that. The early church knew that we need to have kind of a constant repetitive ringing in our ears of what scripture is all about, what is good and right and true. And so when it came time for this, they said, look, Priscillianism is rampant. There's a lot of people that are starting to buy this idea that Jesus wasn't bodily real. We need to have times of celebration and worship intentionally reflecting on the birth of Christ. And so the focus of Advent is just on that. We spend time, we take four to five weeks out of the 52 weeks of the year to focus on the birth, on the fact that Christ came. And, and more than anything, we talk about who he is. So the word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus. And, and it was translated into Latin from the Greek word perusia, which literally means coming. So when we say what is Advent, it's, it's coming, the coming of Christ. We have four years of Christ, or four years, oh man, four weeks of Christ's coming that we build into our hearts and minds as we celebrate over those next few weeks. And so Advent describes God's coming, and historically, the first two weeks of Advent was spent actually celebrating the second coming of Christ, what we do at Easter, So the early church spent the first two weeks focusing on that, and then the second two weeks focusing on the birth narrative, the first one. And so we, over the next four weeks, are going to focus relentlessly on the personhood of Jesus. We we know who Jesus is. We know he's the son, we know he's the second member of the Trinity, if there is an order in it somehow, which there really isn't, as we'll find out. Right? But we, we are going to spend the next four weeks doing a deep dive on the personhood of Christ. Who he is, what he did, why he did it, what he's like, and what it means for us. So that when we come and we gather in the sanctuary on Christmas Eve, we do so as a people that fully understand the Savior that we're celebrating. And you throughout the next few weeks might say, I already know all of this. But, but just let yourself be reminded, if we don't remember, then we'll slowly forget. Christmas is the time to go back to basics, to remind ourselves of who the Savior is. And I can't think of a better text for the next four weeks to spend time in that tells us who Jesus is than the opening of John's gospel in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And so this morning, I would invite us to stand as we read that together. And then we'll zoom in on just a little part of it this week. And we'll keep going throughout the weeks to come. The Gospel of John, the opening prologue in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from the fullness, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one Has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. You can have a seat. John 1 is arguably one of the most beautifully written poetic chapters of all of Scripture in the kind of the top five scripture verses, it it ranks really highly. It's one of the most read passages of scripture. As a matter of fact, in the early church, it was actually a pretty common benediction prayer. They would read this at the end of services. This is kind of how they would send people home. It's a pretty long benediction if we did it at the end based on what we're used to now. But that's what they would do back then. It's also one of the most theologically dense chapters in all of the Bible. So John is not a flowery language guy. He writes beautifully, and he writes poetically, but, but John doesn't waste a single word. Right? And so what John says in, like, four verses takes most other authors in Scripture, like, four chapters, to say. Right? He somehow has a way of just using the perfect word choice. Like he's like a human thesaurus that just knows the exact way to, to put something to make a perfect theological point. Right? And so this morning, in the opening, I want us to focus just on one little section, right? Over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about various things. This passage hits on the divinity of Jesus. It hits on the love of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, the the majesty, the reign of Jesus as king, and all these different things. But this morning, I want to spend time just in the first three verses. So we're going to read those again and just, just hear them very clearly and slowly, and we'll dig into what the meaning of all of these is. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. John uses this word, word. In Greek, it's logos. If you ever, this is your Greek student, Thing of the day, there's a couple of ways in which Greek matters today. And so I always tell you, I never get into the Greek unless it actually is helpful to you. I don't just do that to show that I'm somehow intelligent or anything. But, but logos is the word that John uses here to describe Jesus, right? And if we question whether or not he's talking about a person, he's not saying the words that God spoke way back were somehow with God and were God, right? He later on uses the pronoun him, right? In him, nothing was made that was, you know... He's describing Jesus as a person. So when we see word, it's a title that is ascribed to Jesus. And logos as a word choice has a rich history in both Greek philosophy and Jewish tradition. People would have understood this to mean Jesus Christ. And so when John says in the beginning was the word, he's describing Jesus and no one would have understood anything different. The word choice that he uses for the word was is also important, right? Three times he gives us this, this was. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God with God, and the word was God. And then later he was in the beginning. Right? This was is a very intentional language that's, that's used. And it's actually one of the words that people that don't want to believe in Jesus' incarnation will use to argue. And we'll get to that in a second. But, but was in the Greek here is this me, And there's two words that the Greek uses to say was, is, were, right? This idea of being. And it's, it's either a-me or ginomai, right? Ginomai has this connotation of fluidity. It's becoming, right? Coming of age would be ginomai, or he would go on to become God, would be, you know, my. Was is a final type of word that's used. Right? It's this idea of it always was. There's a completeness to the, to the Greek here where he says, if, when he says, in the beginning was the word. He's not saying in the beginning at some point there was the word, right? So that God existed, and then nothing happened for millennia, and then he made Jesus, and then Jesus was, and then he made creation. No, the was here signifies very clearly that Jesus always was. Always was with God. Always was God. There was never a time where he wasn't. The proclamation here is one of constancy and of permanence. right? And so these these phrases throughout the first three verses... We need to look at kind of on their own to see the various theological truths about Jesus that we get here in this word. So let's do that now. The first section, in the beginning was the word. When you hear that first set, the the, the first place you go in your mind, I'll, I'll test you. When you hear in the beginning was the word, what's the first place in scripture you think about? Genesis 1, right? In the beginning. So John, in the language that he uses to open his gospel, immediately is hearkening back to the creation. So in the beginning, before the creation of the world, before anything, was Jesus. He was, always was, always has been there. He never wasn't. Jesus wasn't in the beginning in the sense that he was made He's in the sense that he always has been. Right? The Genesis connection is another reason that John likes to use this logos term to describe Jesus, because what God created the world by speaking. The whole creation account: God said, that "Let there be light," and so God. John is trying to connect Jesus to the idea of creation. And in case you don't get it, he'll emphasize it again as we get to verse 3. But he's trying to connect those two together. Jesus was with God before anything was made. And Jesus is the word. And and God used words to create. And so Jesus is an integral part of the process of the creating. So Jesus was in the beginning. It's this beautiful picture of the Trinity creating together in harmony. And John's Emphasis here is on the Son, the second member of the Trinity. The Spirit was there too. He just doesn't get into that until much later, right? John will get into the Spirit in places like John 14. But for now, we're just talking about Jesus. But the main thrust of this phrase here is Jesus has always eternally existed. He wasn't made. He wasn't created. God didn't get lonely and make himself a son so that he could have someone to hang out with. Jesus always eternally pre-existed and was he just was. Right? The way we know that is that A-Me is the word that's used anytime in scripture you hear God call himself I am. Right? I am. What's your name, God? My name is I am. And and that am is, is present and past and perfect past and, and future all baked in one. Right? I, I am, I always was, I always will be. I, I just am. I exist, and I always have. And so Jesus gets that same word treatment in the Gospel of John, right? Second, so he's always eternally existed. Second, and the word was with God. The literal translation here would be, and the word of with was here, the word always was continually toward God. And so with here isn't just describing physical proximity, He's not just saying that, look, as God was doing all the creating and, and everything, Jesus kind of always was there, right? Just kind of like sitting there watching it happen uh, over, over somewhere. Or while God was creating the world, Jesus was off somewhere else and, and wasn't a part of it. He just kind of existed as something, right? What he's saying is with stands for both a proximity and kind of an attitude, right? When my wife is struggling in, in, in a week with any given thing, maybe a work thing or she's just having a hard time with the kids, and I, and I look at her and I go, I go, Britta, I'm with you. Right? That's not just a statement of where I am in the proximity of the kitchen. Right? As our kids are melting down, hey, Britta, I mean, I'm next to you. No, it, it's, it's like I'm with you. I mean, like, I'm, I've got your back. I'm, I'm in the same accord. You and I are on the same page together. Right. Go ahead. If you beat him, I won't tell the authorities. <laughs> that never happened in our house, by the way. Don't call, like, CPS or anything. I promise you. <laughs> We've thought about it, but it's never happened. Right? But, but this with, when it says was with God, it means that both Jesus was there, right there with God, during the process of creation. So in the beginning, when God made the heavens and the earth, Jesus always has existed before creation. He was with God, but he was with God. He was with him. It's almost like a, they were face to face, right? They were with each other. So as he was creating, as God the Father was creating, and all the things that God the Father thought and desired and, and wanted for this world, Jesus was with him. They were of one accord, together, unified, in perfect harmony. There's no division among them. There was no discussion of, well, how should you make it that way? No, they were one heart, one soul, one mind. They created together. The desires of the Father and the desires of Jesus were and are 100% one and the same. It also offers us a description of this literal presence. God and Jesus were physically together at creation. They both partook of it. They were both a part of it. When it says in the beginning, God spoke the world into being, God and Jesus spoke the world into being. And so John is weaving this thread of starting to make the case that he ultimately comes to at the end of this. And he says, and the word was God. Hey guys, when God made the world, Jesus was there. And, and by the way, they were together. He wasn't just somewhere out in a whatever. They were one heart, one mind. They made it together. And in case you're not getting what I'm trying to say, Jesus actually was God. He's bluntly stating that Jesus was 100% the same as God the Father. Right? He wasn't just there. He wasn't just present. He wasn't just in the background observing. He and God are one and the same. Anyone that questions this phrase or questions Jesus as God has to wrestle really hard with this phrase. If you ever look at any religions that seek to somehow diminish who Jesus is as anything less than God, this is the number one phrase that they have to wrestle with. But guess what? The world is really good at trying. And so there's a lot of theological attempts to deconstruct this this part of John 1. And one of the ways that they do it is they look at the original language and they'll note this, that when it talks about God, was, the word was God, there's no definite article that is put with God, right? It just says theon. It doesn't say that ha or any kind of definite article that we add to, to God to say it wasn't the God. And so one of the things that people suggest is, well, maybe what it's saying is that Jesus was a God. Because you could get that without the definite article, right? I'm, I am a man, I am the man. Right? There's, there's a difference there. And so they try to argue that, but it doesn't make sense when you look at the grammatical structure of how John writes. First off, the Greeks had a common word for this idea of just kind of heavenly divinity. If they were going to call something godly or godlike or a god, there's a specific word that they would have used that isn't theos, God. When they, when they say that word, they're only describing the God of the universe. It's never used for a divine Like the angels are never talked about in a theos type of sense. Like a type of you know, archangel or other gods aren't spoken of in this way. And so there's a word that they use that's derived from God, but not the same. And so when John uses theos to talk about God, he's saying he was that God. The one, the creator of the universe, the other thing that John does, and this is one of the kind of brilliance things when he, when he writes, is he actually flips the sentence structure from what the normal Greek would be. And so if you translated this literally, what you would get is not, and the word was God, but you would get, and God was the word. And so John actually flips the, the, the sentence order around, because if I say, well, the word was God, you can say, well, the word was God like in, in a way, like kind of. But if you say, and God was the word, it's very different. That's a much tighter connection between the two, right? And so John leaves zero room and zero doubt whatsoever when he says, and the word was God. It's blunt. Jesus was 100% fully God. God. He wasn't a part of God. He wasn't a third of God. He wasn't a sliver. He wasn't godly. He wasn't an heir of God or just the son of God. He was God. When we say God, we're talking about the Father. We're talking about Jesus. They are the same, one and the same person. And here we have the mystery of the Trinity that everybody can't understand. And we try to dissect it. And we try the analogies of er, er, steam and ice and water. And all these things break down because it can't be steam, ice and water all at the same time. Right? We, we can't wrap our minds around the Trinity. And any time people can't wrap their minds about something in scripture, what happens is heresies start to creep in. We start to explain it in earthly terms. And here we have to understand, you cannot fathom what it means that Jesus is God. Your brain cannot compute it. Your brain can only choose to accept it. The structure of the sentence is so emphatic. God was the word. Jesus was God. And so Jesus was eternal. He always has existed. He never wasn't. He was always with God. And so in some ways, there's a sense in which they're separate. There's an individuality to them. But he also always was one and the same with God. They were never apart. They're never of different minds. They're never separate. They're one singular person connected in a way that your mind and my mind will not understand. Definitely not this side of heaven. Maybe not even on the other side. We'll have to find out. After I've worshipped in in heaven for maybe 100,000 years, maybe we'll ask Jesus about it then. Fourth, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Right? If the first two verses are primarily about who Jesus is, this idea of being, then this last section, this last verse 3, is about Jesus' doing. Right? So first John says this to completely lay to, to rest this idea that Jesus was created. Right? So in case you didn't get it, in case you didn't understand that he preexisted, see, before anything was made, Jesus was there. Nothing, anything, nothing at all was created without the presence of Jesus and the participation of Jesus. God didn't start and then Jesus came into the room and said, oh, you're creating. I'll take part in this now. From the very outset, there's not a single thing in this world that has ever existed. A single physical thing, a single spiritual reality, a single thought or iota. Nothing outside of the God had existed. Jesus was part of it and Jesus created it. This is a more common belief that you might think that Jesus was somehow created. It goes that Jesus is outside of the creation, but because God then made him first and then he started making things. John refutes this. Nothing ever existed before God existed. And the second part here is that Jesus is absolutely integral to the creation process. Because Jesus didn't watch the world be made, he was making it. What that means is that Jesus' work is divine work. It's not somehow sub-divine work. It's not that he is the person that is representing the king. He is the king. The king would have people that he would send. You know, the hand of the king that they would send as as a vessel. He carried the king's authority, but he wasn't the king himself. When Jesus acts, Jesus's acts are fully divine acts. And so he's he's not healing on earth when he comes on this earth and he does things like heal or turn water to wine or multiply the loaves and fishes. He's not doing these miracles just under the authority of the father. He talks that way, but it's God himself doing those things. Every single word that Jesus says on earth Every single action that Jesus commits, every single person he heals, every move that he makes is the divine work of God. It is one in the same with the God who speaks the world into creation. And so those are our, our four massive implication things that we pick up just from these first three verses. Jesus is eternal. Jesus and God are one of the same accord. They've always worked together. And as a matter of fact, they are one singular entity, and Jesus was integral in the process of creating. Jesus created the world just like the Father created the world. (coughs) Man, so what do we do with all of this? In the short opening, John establishes this rich theological depth of who Jesus is. And there's a profound mystery in this trinity. And oftentimes we like to rationalize him to these human conditions. We like to think of Jesus as the son in the way that we think of our own fathers or sons. But when Jesus comes to this earth, it's like God himself entering into that which he made. And so part of what we need to understand is that the incarnation, it's a fancy word for describing Jesus entering the world, the incarnation of Jesus Christ is an unbelievable act of not just humility, and in a way degradation, but, but, but a miracle that we can't even understand. How can he who is outside of creation enter into creation? Right? He doesn't put on a human suit. He enters as fully human and fully divine, somehow in the same way. And so when Jesus comes to this earth, it was God himself entering into that which he made. And as we continue to discover who Jesus is over the next few weeks, we're going to look at what that means. Today, Jesus divinity. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at what the love of Jesus looks like, what the grace of Jesus looks like, and then what the majesty and the reign and the kingship of Jesus looks like until we get to Christmas Eve and we celebrate the birth. But until that point, we need to be reminded of the significance of who he is. Right? John's goal, every author of the Gospels has a goal in mind, right? John's, John's goal is that you might know Christ in his fullness. And his very end goal is that in knowing Christ's fullness and discovering the details and the depths and the riches of who he is, that you might come to believe and to be saved. Right? He writes that later on in his gospel. He goes, I've written these things so that you might believe. That's, that's the whole point. And by the time we get to Christmas Eve this year, my goal is the same as John's. My prayer is that we might know the fullness of Christ, not the watered-down version, right? Not Jesus Christ's superstar, but the fullness of who Jesus is so that when we gather on December 24th in this room and when you come with your friends and your extended family and we worship the arrival and we praise God for the arrival of the Savior, of Jesus, we actually fully comprehend the breadth and the depth of what that means to our lives, of how it shapes us and how it changes absolutely everything. And my prayer is that this year we might just take a step back and the busyness, and the mayhem of Christmas season, and just take a few moments to just stand in awe of who Jesus is, of the the insanity of a creator of the universe who would step into that creation in order to save his creatures. It's, It's the greatest story ever told of how Jesus God, creator of the universe, eternally existing, came to be among us. Let's spend the next few weeks discovering it together. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that you sent yourself in your Son, that you sent him to be among us, to live among us, to struggle among us, to die among us, to face trial and persecution as we do among us to rise so that we can celebrate freedom we can celebrate the weight of sin lifted off our shoulders that we can celebrate that we were trapped but that we are free now we thank you for who you are christ jesus for the constancy and the eternity For the fact that when you entered into our world as human that you did so knowing everything about the world and everything in it because you made it. You were there, an active, present, participating along with the Father and the Spirit in unified unison. We pray that this week in the weeks to come, that we might have our hearts focused on you. We pray that in the busy moments that we might be reminded of your truth. We pray that you would keep us from getting swept up in the chaos of, of baking and cleaning and shopping and preparing our homes and what we do with the wacky family member we really wish wouldn't come. And all those things would just take a step back and remind ourselves of who you are and who we are in light of that. Thank you. For the perfect Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one. We love you and we praise you. Together, all his people said,